Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Christ. And uh, this is actually the first time I've ever, I've preached on this multiple times, but always around Easter. So uh, I thought I'm going to take, I'm going to kind of go at it from a little different angle this morning than uh, usually kind of just the whole thing leading up into Jesus's crucifixion. And uh, you'll see how that is as we look at the text. The coronation of George IV of England took place July 19th, 1821. So 189 years ago, exactly tomorrow. Um, the ceremony took place in the very uh, uh, elaborate Westminster Abbey. If you've ever been there, just it's just a marvel of craftsmanship. Uh, nearly 250,000 pounds were spent, which uh, in today's equivalent would be $305 million for the coronation. It was the most expensive coronation in British history. His robe cost the equivalent of $19,000 made of crimson velvet and ermine. The train was 27 feet long and it was studded with gold stars and gold embroidery. And the train itself in today's uh, equivalent would be $700,000. His coronation crown contained 12,314 diamonds, mostly rented. He did own one little diamond called the Hope Diamond, 45 carats, which was hanging around up there somewhere. The coronation procession proceeded under a blue cloth awning the whole way, so nobody got any sun on them. They walked on a specially made wooden floor, so they didn't have to get their feet on the ground. The beginning of the procession were were the king's herb woman and her attendants who threw out herbs to repel the black plague. Next came officers of state, some holding key uh, items like the crown, the orb, the scepter, the sword of state. These are followed by three bishops carrying a golden plate for the bread, a chalice for the wine and a Bible for celebrating communion. King George was next in line, dressed in coronation clothes, wearing a brown wig topped with a black Spanish hat, decorated with ostrich feathers and sticking out the top an ostrich or or a heron's plume so no one could miss him. Following the group uh, uh, were a group of peers, uh, um, just uh, those who were heads of state, uh, London dignitaries, and they were all in their best coronation clothes. Following that, uh, and you just got to picture it in your mind, was just the who's who of everybody uh, in in London and the surrounding England. Anybody really rich? Anybody powerful was there, and they're all vying for attention, especially the women. They're all wearing their most expensive, elegant, and sometimes gaudy attire. The heads of state and bishops and barons and dukes and knights and, you know, all looking for attention. Some of the women were described as literally ablaze with diamonds. They just like look like somebody coated them. Having not eaten all day, they were famished after the long, uh, detailed ceremony. And they all then gathered when uh, uh, a meal was presented. Meat dishes such as turtle soup and salmon and turbot and trout and venison and veal and mutton and beef and braised ham and braised cap and lobster and crayfish and cold roasted fowl and lamb were 
brought out among other meat dishes. There were over a thousand side dishes, potatoes, peas, cauliflower, nearly 500 sauce boats brimming with lobster sauce and butter sauce and mint sauce. For dessert, there was delicate pastries, dishes of jellies, cream pies, candies, cakes, and all kinds imaginable. And so went the coronation of King George IV. Sorry to do that right before lunch, too. Um, <laughs> but the, the text we're going to look at this morning is it's similar in some ways and then very different in other ways because this is Jesus's triumphal entry. Almost every Bible says it's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Ironically, the both, the bulk of the people who are following don't even believe in him. They aren't trusting him as their savior and lord and redeemer. They're willing to have him if he does what they want. Many living in Jericho or passing through Jericho had seen this large crowd. Jesus had gone through Jericho and they had seen this large crowd. And if you remember what happened, uh, they were kind of collecting. Remember, it's Passover week. And so uh, soon Passover celebration is going to start. So there's pilgrims all over the Mediterranean world who are converging upon Jerusalem. And since there was a major river crossing at Jericho, people are kind of funneled in there. And so when Jesus comes into Jericho, when he heals blind Bartimaeus, and when he totally transforms Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, people are wowed. So he already has probably a couple hundred disciples. And in addition to that, he has just curious onlookers and angry Pharisees and people now collected and attached to the group from Jericho. In addition to that, and you know what happens, right? What happens when you're you're all of a sudden in, you know, a department store and all of a sudden you see this big crowd? What does it make you want to do? Go over there and see what's happening. And so all these people who are traveling to Jerusalem are kind of like, what's going on over there? And so they all then go and they see this man who's able to perform miracles, who's able to take a chief tax collector and make him stand up and declare to everyone present, I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor. And not only am I going to do that, anybody I have wrong, I'm going to pay him back fourfold. Pretty amazing stuff. Pretty amazing stuff. And so the crowd is kind of interested in him. And there's kind of a mob mentality going on there in Jericho. And so eventually Jesus leaves Jericho. He heals those blind men and it just adds to the fervor. And he teaches about a nobleman who went away to receive a kingdom, then came back to reign. And so he's kind of planted little kingdom thoughts and reigning thoughts in their mind. And as they're traveling up the 17, 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, this huge group and more people are attaching to it. And he gets up. To Bethany and Bethpage, and the next day he's going to descend down the Mount of Olives into his triumphal entry. But you know what? In a worldly sense, he seems anything but triumphant. I mean, he's no military general. He's not coming back from any war that anybody knows about. He doesn't have any carts full of plunder. He hasn't captured some kings and queens and noblemen. He doesn't have them bound and being drugged behind carts by stern soldiers. 
There's no shields. There's no swords. There's no glistening armor. There's no trumpets and big colorful banners waving. No feast has been prepared and no money spent. And I'm sure at that time, just because of all the people there, the Roman soldiers were on alert. More would come into Jerusalem to maintain the peace because the Jews, you know, they're kind of can be a little hot headed. And there had been constant revolts because of the oppression of the Romans. And so surely there's Roman soldiers walking along the perimeter of the Temple Mount. And not only that, there's Fortress Antonia, which is built above the Temple Mount, looking down. And they see this big crowd of people descending the slope, the western slope, heading down in the Kidron Valley towards the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And they're looking and going, you know, look at these Jews. They're all excited about a guy on a donkey. With plain clothes. And so from a worldly perspective, he is laughable and pretty pathetic. But in a spiritual sense, he has lived in the world for 33 years and never sinned once. He has obeyed the Father's will perfectly. He has resisted temptation to the utmost degree. Think about that. He has proclaimed repentance from sin and the gospel of salvation to multitudes. He has trained men to carry on his work after he dies. He has led many from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He is on his way to the cross, knowing the cross is waiting, knowing there is shame, knowing there is pain, knowing there is torture, knowing there is crucifixion, and he still moves forward. Why? Because he sees beyond the cross. He sees on the other side, after he has made perfect atonement for sin, after he has been resurrected from the dead and conquered death itself, to that time where he ascends into heaven and experiences the glory which he had with the Father before the world began, and beyond that to a time when all the saints of all the ages and all the holy angels are gathered around his throne, that massive of, of redeemed humanity, and they're all going to be praising him, and he's looking there as he goes to the cross. And so from a spiritual perspective, He's hugely triumphant. So look with me at Luke chapter 19. Follow along as I read verses 28 through 40. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethage of Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you there as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has, no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? They said the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. 
As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Pray with me. Father, we just ask that this text would be embedded into our heart, that we would learn some important truths here about Jesus, about his character, and about how that applies to our life and how we are to respond because of it. Father, I pray that you would cause your spirit to move mightily, that it, your word would go forth with power, that each of us would leave here changed. And Father, that you would be glorified because of it. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's tons here. This is a big passage for me. But what we're going to do is emphasize two overarching qualities of Jesus and one proper response. And the first quality is Jesus is God. Look at verse 28. It says, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he's at Zacchaeus's house. He Zacchaeus has just done his thing. And then he has then... Uh, Uh, told the parable of the nobleman who went to the distant country and came back. He told that parable. And so they've kind of have embedded in their mind this whole idea of the nobleman reigning, all of that. They've seen uh, Bartimaeus be healed. As Jesus heads out of town, he's healed those two blind men. And so there's some pretty pretty good excitement. Uh, They're they're excited because they think that, you know what? I don't know if this guy is one of them. We've had so many people coming, claiming to be the Christ. So many people leading revolts that have failed. But you know what? He's better than anyone. At least he can do miracles. At least he's an amazing teacher. And at least he's got a huge group of people. So let's join on the bad wagon. Let's just follow him and see what happens. And though most are not willing to part from their sins to follow Jesus, they're willing to see what he can do for Israel against Rome. If Jesus can conquer Rome, if he can give them what he wants, yeah, they'll support him as king. And meanwhile, they'll support him until they see if he can do that or not. But they weren't looking for a savior and a redeemer. Most of them didn't even see themselves as sinners. They were self-righteous. And so... There is a jump in the bad wagon perspective here. Kind of the mob mentality. Okay, yeah, this is exciting. Let's go. We're going up to Jerusalem anyways. Let's go on up in a mob. Look at verse 29. And when he approached Bethphage of Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, and just stop there for a moment. Bethphage is a, is a, they don't even know where it is. It's just somewhere on the slope of the Mount of Olives. But uh, Bethany is, they know where that is. You can even go there today. Anyways, it's on the eastern slope heading up. The Mount of Olives is that mountain that's just a little bit higher than Jerusalem, just to the east of Jerusalem. And so they're going up there. And on in Bethany is where Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, um, lived and uh, where his kind of his base of operations is going to be all week long if you look at the story. The chronology is very difficult to try and figure out because uh, Matthew and Mark don't really try and even present a clear chronology. They're just like extracting little episodes that happen during the week and they put them where they want. 
Uh, John is a little bit more clear, but still there's certain things that are uncertain. We know from John chapter 12, verse 1, that at this point there were six days until Passover. Passover that year fell on Friday, which means it started Thursday night. Now the question is, six days until Passover, does that mean six days before the day before Passover, which would be Wednesday night, or six days before Passover, which would be Thursday night, or six days before Passover ended, which would be Friday night. I don't know. Um, that, that's the problem when you try and figure it out. So we aren't real exactly sure about the chronology, but some things are sure. And that is that Jesus stayed with Simon the leper and had a meal with him. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, ate with Jesus. Uh, there may have been a relationship between uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because they did eat at Simon the lepers and Martha was the one who was serving or it could just be that you know Simon didn't have a wife and Martha was helping out so Martha served the meal and at that time Mary uh, took that uh, perfume and poured it on Jesus's head and his feet and uh, and kind of anointed him for his burial of course, Judas objected and said, hey, we could have taken that. That was an expensive perfume. We could have sold it for 300 denarii and, and uh, used it to feed the poor. Uh, John comments that the reason he said that is he was just hoping to get the money so he could pilfer from the cash box. In John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, it says the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, see if you can follow this in your mind. We know that Jesus, we know about Palm Sunday. So we know the triumphal entry happens on Sunday. The, the question is, when did Jesus show up? Was it Thursday afternoon that he showed up? So he would be there uh, on you know Friday, which would kind of put him six days away from the beginning of Passover. Surely uh, he could have showed up Friday afternoon, which is very likely. Most likely he wouldn't have showed up on Saturday because that was the Sabbath and you couldn't walk over a Sabbath day's journey, which was 1,000 steps. And so that's out. And so most likely he showed up maybe Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, kind of spent the Sabbath, laid low. And there was enough people who knew that he was around that word had kind of gotten out, but the Sabbath kind of stunted them from doing anything. But they're very interested about it and words getting out. And all these people, of course, are visiting. This is the busiest week of the year in Jerusalem. So it's like the perfect time to do something like die for the sins of the world. And so you have this huge mass of people and they're not doing anything. They don't have jobs. They're there visiting. So they've got free time, right? And so as soon as dawn breaks on Palm Sunday morning, all these people start talking and go, you know what? I heard this rumor that there's this guy, Jesus, and I know he's been traveling around. I've never seen him. I heard he can heal the sick and he healed a blind man. He even raised a man from the dead and the guy lives right over the hill. And so these people are starting to congregate and to move towards Bethany because they want to see Lazarus and Jesus, whom they have heard is just over the hill from Jerusalem. Not only that, there is this crowd of people that have collected around Jesus, disciples and people from Jericho and People, other pilgrims who've kind of attached themselves as he was coming up the hill. Uh, Those people have attached. And so there's this other crowd that's coming. And so there's this huge conclave kind of getting ready to gather together. Meanwhile, Jesus, look at verse 29 in the middle there, sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. 
There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. And tie it and bring it here. So both Bethpage and Bethany are located in the Easter Slope of the Mount of Olives. Just go to that. And notice Luke comments that no one had ever sat. Why is that? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a couple instances of animals that were used for sacred purposes. And they were used for sacred purposes. They would not let anybody sit on them. They were just to be unused, unspoiled Brand new, so to speak, uh, animals. Uh, Numbers chapter 19, verse 2, 1 Samuel 6, 7 are two examples. So look at verse 31. There Jesus goes on to say, And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Now, you need to just step back here. Ever since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been traveling and moving towards Jerusalem, right? I mean, he's been away from Jerusalem for a long time now. How does he know? There's a colt tied up in the next village. How does he know, even if he heard that there was one there, that it's still there? How does he know a guy's going to come out and say, hey, what are you doing? How does he know that when they say the Lord has need of it, the guy's going to go, okay. I mean, what if you were in your living room and you were, you know, looking out and, uh, you know, in the backyard and all of a sudden you see two guys, you know, wheeling out your lawnmower, your barbecue. And you stop and say, hey, 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 what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Well, listen, the Lord didn't tell me. I mean, you confront them. You're not going to let them do that. So something very unique is happening here. It's, you know, it's kind of like Jesus. When I I read this, it's like Jesus is telling um, his disciples, these two disciples to just, you know, use the Jedi mind trick on them. I mean, uh, notice that uh, the Lord has need of it. Okay. Look at verse 32. Those who were sent went away, found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the cold, its owner said to them, why are you untying the cold? Here's the Jedi mind trick. The Lord has need of it. And the guy goes, okay. And they brought it to Jesus. You know, the man doesn't recognize Jesus' disciples. And it seems more than just coincidental that Jesus knew about the cold, where it would be, where it would be, that it would be tied up. That it would be tied up in a certain place. That its owner would say, why are you taking it? That if they said the Lord had need of it, then they would let him have it. It seems to me that some divine power is working here. And we see, I believe, God all-knowing in the person of Christ. Who knows things that no one could ever know. You know, Jesus in his incarnation... That is, as a human, as both God and man, chose not to exercise his divine attributes unless it was the Father's will. But when it was the Father's will, he used those divine attributes. He tapped into them. At times, you will see him in the Gospels where he just doesn't know things. At other times, it seems that he does know things, but he still asks people questions because he wants them to answer for their benefit. And other times, he just knows things that no one could know. Jesus has all knowledge because Jesus is God. J.C. Ryle comments, quote, He speaks like one to whom all things were open, like one whose eyes are everywhere, like one who knew unseen things as well as visible things, end quote. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 27, do you remember when Jesus and Peter needed to pay tax? And you remember what Jesus said? He says, however, 
so that we not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. How does the guy know that? I mean, I've caught a lot of fish. I've never found a shekel in any of them. I think one summer I caught, you know, uh, almost 200 tons of tuna. I never found a shekel in one fish. I mean, what is that? What is that? What kind of knowledge? Where do you go to school to find out which fish has a shekel in it? You know, obviously God is at work here. John, who emphasizes the, the deity of Christ, tells us in John fourteen twenty nine that Jesus said, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. How does Jesus know things before it happens? In John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus speaking to Peter says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And bring you where you do not wish. And then John comments that Jesus was predicting the way Peter would die. And he did. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. This is actually just the continuation of our text. There's Our text starts here. The triumphal entry. And then Luke focuses on the teachings of Jesus. And then it switches back to kind of the progressive narrative to his, his trial and crucifixion. But notice here in Luke 22, verse 10, Jesus is giving instruction for the preparation of the Passover. When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. How is that? Follow him into the house that he enters. Look down at verse 13. And they left and found everything just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Look over at verse 34. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. I mean, how does Jesus know these things? Because he's God. Because he's God. You know, but even if you were to say, I mean, even if we were to take these things and go, well, Jack, the the gospels are condensed. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things here that aren't aren't mentioned, which is true. And, you know, Jesus could have very easily and made arrangements with a guy with a cult, and it's just not recorded there. He probably slipped away, even though there was a couple thousand people on the hillside waiting to talk to him. He just snuck through them and, you know, made arrangements and said, here's the secret password. When somebody comes to you and says, the Lord has need of it, you just hand over. And, okay, all right. You know, I mean, that could have happened, I guess. And, you know, all these other things, you say, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus could have just, these are, these are not supernatural things. This is just Jesus, this is expert administrator, which he certainly is. But still, there's things here that argue strongly for the deity of Christ that really just cannot be avoided. You know, God is all sovereign. And he governs the whole world by providence. Providence is that working of God behind the scenes to bring about whatsoever he wills. And I know we've all experienced this where something's happening in our life. We're thinking, man, Lord, what's happening? And, and uh, you know, why are you doing this to me? And things like that. And then we look back and go, oh, now I can see. 
God was teaching me this. God was doing this. If God hadn't done that, and we can look back and we can see how his providence was working, but we can never see right now what's really happened. We can only see where we're at, but not necessarily what God's accomplishing until usually we look back and see what has happened. And so providence is how God orchestrates or expresses his sovereignty in his creation. And he is working all things to the counsel of his will because he's in control of all things. He is completely sovereign. And we see several ways Jesus does this in our text. First, Jesus purposely brings about a full-blown public demonstration that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, when you think about the Gospels and what Jesus has done up to this point, Jesus has said things like, okay, I know I healed you, but don't tell anybody. Promise me, don't tell. Or he does some incredible thing and people are just like, man, he's just like, my time has not yet come. So you don't get to understand this. It's like, okay. Or he sneaks away. It's like, well, where is he? I mean, we're ready to make him king. Where did he go? And so Jesus kept postponing, postponing, postponing the mob, you know, making him king. But now Jesus has by miracles, has by teaching about the kingdom, by healing the blind man, by the conversion of Zacchaeus by the raising of Lazarus from the dead by staying at saying at Simon the leprous house just over the hill from Jerusalem gathered a huge crowd. And they're not only this huge crowd is not only coming from Jerusalem down to meet him. He's getting ready to come over the hill so that these two huge crowds are going to converge and make a really huge crowd. And you say, well, why? What's, what's going on here? He's orchestrating his death. That's what's going on. He's pushing the religious leaders to act according to his timetable rather than their timetable. I mean, you know what's going to happen? The Pharisees are going to see this gigantic mob around Jesus. And Jesus was, you know, real nice to them, called them blind guides, the blind, whitewashed sepulchers, hypocrites, pronounced woe and judgment on them. They know that if Jesus becomes king, they're out of there. So Jesus has got to get out of there. So they're plotting. And so when they see Jesus coming down and they see people letting him ride in this cult and they have, they're spreading their coats and they're treating him like a king. They're just, they're freaking. It's like, Wah! and so Jesus then knows that as soon as he pushes them, they're then going to be forced to act. When they start crying out those messianic psalms saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're just going to be going, oh no, he's unraveling Judaism. John 12, 19 says, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They're just, they're freaking out because Lazarus is leading people. Lazarus must have become this major evangelist because many of the Jews, it says, came to Christ because of him. So there's all of these things. Jesus in his sovereignty is orchestrating all of these events to bring about this triumphal entry in the busiest week of the year. And so that at the busiest week of the year, 
More people can see him hailed as king. More people can see him tried. More people can see him crucified. And more people can see him rise from the dead. Not only that. Secondly, we see the Pharisees would surely go to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. The Pharisees were just hounding Jesus. They're with him at every step of the way. They just wouldn't let him go. They're just like flies. They're just buzzing around all the time, attacking him, trying to discredit him. And as soon as they see this mob, and as soon as they hear the Hosanna and the highest, they're, you know what they're going to do. They're going to run. They're going to beat feet to the Jewish council going, you've got to do something right now. And it just so happened that Jesus three years before that, picked a man that he knew was going to betray him on purpose. Jesus says, did I not choose the 12 of you? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knew that Judas would line himself up with Satan, that he would be a lover of money. And Judas, seeing the opportunity that afforded itself because of the hatred of the Jews, the mass of the people would then be willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. All of this was orchestrated by Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus worked things to fulfill prophecy. He comes in riding on a colt, just as it was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, which we'll see in a minute. They sing uh, the messianic song from Psalm 118, verse 26. Fourthly, Jesus has worked all of this out in a time when the greatest number of people were in Jerusalem so they could witness it all. And fifthly, Jesus rides an unbroken colt into Jerusalem. Now, if you have never been raised around animals and you've just been a city slicker all your life, you don't understand the significance of this. You do not get on an unbroken animal unless, you know, you're ready to hee-haw. If you want to break in a donkey, this is what you've got to do. They're really smart animals and they're stubborn and they don't like being trained. So you have to be around there. You have to befriend them, give them little treats, start putting little things, little cloths, little pieces of string and rope, just drape it around their neck and they'll shake it off. You just slowly, every day you're putting stuff on there, you're befriending, kind of get them used to things dangling. And then eventually you, you kind of just drape over a couple layers of rope around their neck and you put things on their nose and you just kind of get them used to it. And invariably you very put a rope over their neck. And I mean, you have to do this for a long time if you don't they will make supplications to you and yet jesus says go get this donkey this colt that no one has ever ridden and he gets on it and it doesn't fuss it's totally calm why because jesus is the creator As Colossians says, all things were created by him and through him and nothing that exists, exists except that which is through him. And it's really impossible for us to grasp what it would be like to just know all things and be all sovereign. I mean, just imagine knowing everything. Does that just blow you away? What if you knew everything that ever happened in history, everything that would happen, everything that is happening, everything that happened in the spiritual realm among all the angels, and not only that, this is the real mind blower, what if you knew everything that could happen too? 
the infinite number of contingencies and what ifs, if this and not that and this happened. You know, I mean, that's what, you know, time travel movies are so fun. Somebody goes back in time and change some little thing and you go to the present and everything's way different. God knows that. He knows everything. And Christ being God knows everything. And, and what is it, what would it be like to just be all sovereign? I mean, how does God cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to your purpose? The accident, the death, the suffering, the trial, the robbery. I mean, you, you just put all of the evil in the world and you think, you see, God causes all that to work together for good? Yes. How does he do that? He's God. That's how. He's God. Or as Ephesians 1.11 says, he is working all things after the counsel of his will. That is just so awesome. It's mind-boggling. But that's what we see Jesus doing here. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10 in that famous passage where um, he speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is what he says in verses 17 through 18. Think about this now because of what we're talking about and Jesus is approaching death. Listen to this. Jesus says in verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but i lay it down on my own initiative i have authority to lay it down and i have authority to take it up again this commandment i receive from my father jesus is not a helpless victim he's orchestrating everything according to the father's will to accomplish his will that is just so cool I love it when Peter preaches in Acts and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified by the predetermined plan of God. That's awesome. So that means he can take that trial in your life and turn it into the greatest blessing you've ever had. He can take that sickness, that death of a loved one, that mean boss, that trial at work, that losing of your job, that going without money, that financial crisis, and he's going to work it for your good. He's going to work it for your good. Ed Wildey sent me a very convicting quote this week. I think it was, I forget what book, I think it was from The Cup of the Glory by Greg Harris, but he said a lot of times we we pray for God to remove the very means he is using to answer our prayer. Think about that. Have you ever prayed, Lord, make me more godly? And then what does God do? He says, okay, here it comes. And then what do you do? You start praying, Lord, take it away, take it away. He said, listen, I'm answering your prayer. Hold still. (laughs) Hold still. This is good for you. But we don't see it that way. And keep in mind that all hell is against Jesus right now. Satan and all his minions know who Jesus is. They are oppressing Jesus. They're going against Jesus. They're trying to tempt Jesus. They're trying to thwart him. They're trying to dispel him. They're trying to get him attacked, killed, anything they can. They're just trying to figure out whatever it is. They know the prophecies. They're experts in scripture. And all the demons and Satan are working against Jesus. In addition to that, the Jewish leaders are against him. They want to see him killed. They want to see anybody who follows him get killed. 
Not only that, the disciples, they swear undying allegiance. They just say, listen, we are going to follow you to the end. Though all should forsake you. I will never forsake you, Peter says. And all the rest said the same thing. And what happened? They all left him. They all left him in his time of greatest need. They all abandoned him. Fulfilling another prophecy by Zechariah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And the volume of details converging on this specific place at this specific week and the life of Jesus is just astronomical. As all of these details and prophecies and situations are all coming to a head so that Jesus can die to redeem you. You. To make perfect atonement for sin so all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's just, it's great. And he did die. And he did make that atonement. He did purchase with his blood that means of sinners being saved. And he now, after being raised from the dead, is on the throne. And he is now ruling, having accomplished what he came to do. We sang the song earlier, I have a maker before my heart, before even time began, my life was in his hands. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He knows. He sees each tear that falls. He hears me when I call. He hears me. When I call, when you call, he hears you. He knows. He's never up there going, man, if I only knew, Jack, what was going to happen to you, I would have saved you. I didn't see that coming. I was sleeping. He knows. He not only knows what's going to happen, he's bringing it. And he's going to use it for my good. And even though it may be very painful, and I, I might not, I just might think, Lord, I have no idea how this could be used for good. He does. He's God. So Jesus knows all about you. Jesus is all sovereign. Jesus is all knowing. And secondly, Jesus is the long awaited king. Look at the middle of verse 35. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Just stop there. Why? They were honoring him. They didn't want him to touch the animal. This is something you did for a king. You don't want to get any animal hair on you. We're going to put our coats. We're going to put our clothes to honor you on that colt so you can sit on our clothes instead of that animal. And so that's what happens. They're honoring him. And notice Jesus didn't get on it. They put him on it. Yeah, some friends, huh? A donkey that's never been ridden. Here, we'll stick you on it, Lord. But they're making a statement. And Jesus, by writing that cult that was prophesied, you know, a cult is a pretty wobbly animal. You know, it's it's a weak animal. It's a wobbly animal. It's not like the great white steed we see Jesus on in the book of Revelation when he comes forth to conquer. It's a statement of humility. It's a statement that he is the prince of peace coming in humility. And so they put him on this little wobbly colt and he's wobbling his way down the Mount of Olives as the prince of peace, as Isaiah calls him. 
and Matthew and John, because they write to Jews, reference Zechariah 9, 9, the prophecy that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter in Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. They just... Mm. Look at verse 36. And as he was going along, they were spreading their coats on the road. This is kind of like the royal carpet. Matthew Mark said they also put leafy branches down there. John says they took out the palm fronds so that they're shading him and they're waving him. So they're kind of fanning him and protecting him from the sun. I mean, they're giving him the royal treatment. And because the feast of the tabernacles is that there, there's lots of palm fronds to be had. So they all got him. Because they're going to make their little tabernacles out of them. And they're just giving him the red carpet treatment. Because they think he's the Messiah. The coming king of David. At least that's what they're treating him as like. Then Most of them, granted, don't really believe that he is. They hope he is. But they're not trusting him as savior. Look at verse 37. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They had seen Jesus do the miracles, heal blind Bartimaeus, heal the disciples with them the whole time, saw so many miracles. But just recently, Zacchaeus and, and Lazarus, they saw these things. And so they're praising God and They want to see him conquer Rome and they're willing to support him if they can get what they want. But you know what? Most of these people, most of these, this crowd here that we're going to see just go crazy. Most of this crowd in just a few days are going to see Jesus arrested. They're going to see him beat, spit upon, scourged, mocked. And when they see that, They're going to think in their heads, this is no king. He doesn't have any power. Those miracles must have been tricks. Zacchaeus must have been a plant. Lazarus probably never died. Bartimaeus probably could see all along. The guy's a phony. He's a fake. He's no king who's going to conquer. Look at what they're doing to him. And then in an angry reaction, they're going to say, crucify him. Some of these in the same crowd are surely going to do that to Jesus just a few days from this point. But right now they're all for him big time. Look at verse 38. So Jesus is now in the cold. He's covered with coats. The ground is covered with branches. They're waving the palm fronds. The whole crowd, Jerusalem's looking, all these people on the temple mount are looking down going, wow, what's going on? Then in verse 38, they say, they are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're shouting out Psalm 118, 26, a messianic psalm saying, blessed is he. And they're going, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? And you know what comes right before Psalm 118, verse 26? Let me remind you. The stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. God is bringing this about. It's the Lord's doing that Jesus would come in at this time, be hailed as king, but rejected so he could suffer for the sins of those who hated him. He caused it to happen because he's all knowing, he's all sovereign, he's God and king. 
Three, therefore, Jesus must be praised. Look at verse 39. The crowd is just going wild. They're singing the messianic songs. There's the branches, the coats, the palm fronds. And some Pharisees of the crowd say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're just beside themselves going, I can't believe you're letting them do this. This is blasphemous. You want the Messiah? You want the King of David? They're, they're, they're angry. They're, they're, they're desperate. And then, oh, I love this. Look at verse 40. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these, these followers of mine right now become silent, the stones will cry out. I love that. Do you see these stones here in this rampart? Do you see the stones here in this retaining wall? Do you see the stones here in the side of the temple mount? I'm telling you, if these followers, if you could happen to shut up these several thousand people right now, if you could shut them up, the stones would cry out. Because my father has decreed I would come in in this day. My father has decreed that I would be hailed as the king of David. It is his absolute decree that this happened and nothing can stop it. And even if you could stop the people, the stones would cry out because it must happen. I must be praised. As Job said in Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't stop this. I'm God. Psalm 67, verses 3 through 5 exhorts us. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations and the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So Tim, come on up and lead us. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name, the only name that saves. Let's stand and let's sing. As morning dawns and 